0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to What's App, a space for Asian-American progressive voices in California.
1: All right, welcome to What's App, and my name is Jian Carolyn Park, and joining me as co-host today is Rex Lay. Hi.
0: (laughs) First time on the show.
1: Yay. (laughs) Excited. And we're going to talk about mutual aid today with Susan Park, who is a mutual aid organizer, an activist, and entrepreneur. Um, And we're specifically going to talk about the role of mutual aid um, in AAPI communities. Not only is she the founder of Asian Americans for Housing and Environmental Justice, she's also an entrepreneur and owns revolutionario tacos which she recently turned during the pandemic into a mutual aid hub she is also a founder and editor of ghidra magazine welcome susan thank you for having me all right so let's dive in um Susan, we're going to start off with a very hard question for you. What is your favorite snack from the culture you identify with?
2: It's Korean seaweed snack. So it's thin sheets of roasted lava
0: that's brushed with uh,
2: sesame oil and... uh, coarse salt and i love it because it's super thin crispy but it kind of melts in your mouth and i like the mineral brightness from the sea
1: yum i love that too um
0: also my favorite snack <laughs>
1: <laughs> susan do you remember when when we when our families had to um roast it by yeah. hand <laughs>
2: Yes, I remember that um, in Korea before my family moved here when I was five years old. My parents would roast individual sheep over a large uh, charcoal briquet. And they would torture me and my brothers because they wouldn't let us eat until they were done roasting the entire snack. I mean entire stack of seaweed. Wow. And we'd just like, Why yeah, why can't we just nibble? And they're like, No, no, no. It tastes better if you have to wait. You know, that whole idea of suffering that <laughs> <laughs> older people
1: people folks don't know how easy they have it nowadays.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds super labor intensive.
2: Yeah, my kids grew up on the snack packs, right? And then uh, two years ago, I realized I hadn't taught them how it's made. So I told, I explained the process of roasting. So my daughter, who was 20, 20, 20 years old at the time, she's twenty two now. She decided that what her interpretation of roasting, even though I described it over at charcoal briquettes, right, briquettes, um, she decided to roast a single sheet of seaweed in the oven. <laughs> Now think about this. Think about our Asian parents is rolling over. You turned on that entire friggin' oven for a single sheet. (sighs) Anyway. (laughs) Oh, man. I
1: I guess I just dated myself, too, but it's all good. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah,
0: I'm definitely in the generation of your kids where I grew up on those packets. (laughs) And the kids at school, whenever you bring it in, they'll mob you for... (laughs) yeah they
2: go nuts it's (laughs) better than like uh, chips right yeah
0: Yeah.
1: you know what as as a kid in grade school I went to a grade school that was pretty mixed but I would say still majority white (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I introduced a lot of those kids to seaweed
2: And, and they're they, all talking about you now. They're all saying well, I had a Korean friend. <laughs> <laughs> and I
1: and I used to trade it for for other snacks. Yeah. It was I, a hot commodity.
0: Yeah, I grew up in an Asian bubble, so best way to gain social status was just to bring a pack of seaweed. <laughs> <laughs> Never had a lunchbox moment. All the Asian kids knew what, what's up and then they would just like cluster around you and worship you till for one piece.
2: Yeah, my kids went to a French American private school, then regular private school. I mean, regular public school, and, um, you know, they're 17 and 22 now, and they, the seaweed, Korean seaweed snack was always popular during their entire childhoods. Um, when I was growing up, um, it wasn't even packaged as snacks, so I'm really dating myself now, aren't I?
1: <laughs> I, I I'm from that time as well. There, okay. were, no, there
2: yeah. were no roasted
1: packs back then. <laughs>
2: No, you had to make your own. You know, my grandmother used to go D.C. diving to pluck her own. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 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 Oh, man.
0: And time for our first question. Question. What is mutual aid to you?
2: Mutual aid to me is uh, communities working together to ensure survival of our most vulnerable and isolated members. We work cooperatively to um, pool resources and share resources. And again, with our most vulnerable community members, at the same time, we organize ourselves to change the system that created these shortages and hazards and, um, you know, people who are at risk when they don't need to be. So I don't generally prescribe wholesale to any ideology or theory, and that includes mutual aid organizational theory, which is very popular. And uh, right now, um, And it's a lot of talking, which I tend to not like to do sometimes. Sometimes I talk a lot, but I prefer to do. Um, I think mutual aid organizational theory positions mutual aid as distinct from charity um, and sometimes even opposed to charity. But I think that um, I have some disagreements with that. I like to be practical and realistic instead of uh, ideological. So I think professionals and experts are needed. They can be very valuable in scaling mutual aid. Um, to meet increasing demands caused by um, pandemic or COVID-19 or any other kind of crisis that affects low-income BIPOC communities. And I think leaders need to be able to make hard decisions fast in order to meet emergencies and sustain direct aid. Um, I think technical expertise, funding, and legitimization by communities who benefit from a mutual aid program are important. And, but I'm also critical of American charitable models that encourage a culture of begging and scarcity. There's too much white saviorism and paternalism in mainstream American nonprofits and the charitable model. Um, aid is often provided in a vacuum without addressing or transforming the underlying conditions and systemic issues that cause the problems in the first place. Oftentimes, there are arbitrary conditions for the recipients, such as uh, sobriety or accepting God. I also think that charities often perpetuate problems or contribute to the growth of problems. It keeps the charitable industrial complex growing. Um, For example, I was shocked to hear an Episcopalian priest And I can name names, but I won't. You know, I like to respect people's privacy. Um, And there's just no, I don't, I'm not really into cancel culture and shame culture. But an Episcopalian priest told me that his shelter can only accept older men after they've been homeless for two weeks. This is a purely arbitrary decision on his part and the part of the Episcopalian Church. I was shocked because it is much easier and cheaper to keep someone housed than it is to shelter them or find new housing for them. I've helped people stay housed with free information, $30 to pay off a ticket so they can keep their car and keep going to work. If they can't keep going to work, they're not going to be able to pay their utilities or their rent. It's just 30 lousy dollars or free information. Um, You know, extremely low-income people often struggle to pay for basic needs. If you can help them with one basic need, it helps them to meet their other basic needs. And I chose food aid because we all need to eat every day and food aid is the easiest aid to come by. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm really against these arbitrary decisions that these are completely unnecessary. You know, you tell me you can't accept one. Why not?
0: Yeah. My most recent job was with an uh, NGO that was also, like, passing aid out to uh, folks mm-hmm. impacted by COVID. And, mm-hmm. yeah, like like uh, Susan said, there's a lot of, like, criteria, especially when our funders mm-hmm. are from, like, the county and they want, like, mm-hmm. you have to make a certain amount, and we have to, like, basically annoy them mm-hmm. with phone calls just to make sure they fall fallen under that criteria just so mm-hmm. they can get money aid. Mm-hmm.
1: So what is the model of your mutual aid effort, and what is the mission of your mutual aid effort?
2: Okay, um, so the mission is... I started Asian Americans for Housing and Environmental Justice in February of 2020. It's also um, a nonprofit. Our initial mission was to provide in language, culturally competent direct aid, support, and services to at risk older or unhoused Asian Americans. Low income and older Asian Americans and unhoused Asian Americans are more likely to be heritage language only speakers. So they fall through the cracks all the time. Mainstream nonprofits and government entities have largely failed to address the language and cultural needs of Asian Americans who need social services. And we saw a huge vacuum that has allowed the rapid growth in homelessness among older Asian Americans. Koreatown alone has approximately 700 homeless Asian Americans, and possibly another 200 LGBTQ trans uh, LGBTQ plus Korean and Asian teenagers. And this we we're just talking about Koreatown alone. And This has um, grown rapidly in the last five to six years. So um, what Asian Americans for Housing and Environmental Justice does is we harness aspects of mutual aid and charitable or nonprofit organizations. We're able to make fast decisions. We don't wait for politicians, the media, funders, or academics to research problems for us. We know that there are poor people in low-income neighborhoods. This is not, we don't need to research this. We know they're there. We know that things got worse. For them since COVID 19 and shelter in place orders low-income bipoc are always hit first when there is a crisis um our initial round of direct aid to anyone any community because we know they're low income we don't have to you know we don't have to really ask them more questions who the hell is standing in line for ten dollars for worth of food for you know 20 minutes 30 minutes or even an hour you know, we, $10 worth of food or a $50 um, box of produce. People who don't need that, who have enough, have better things to do than just stand in line for that or even sign up for that. That's just ridiculous, you know? Not even luxury food. It's just good, wholesome produce. And um, so we're, we don't question the recipients, and it's unconditional. We don't say that they have to be sober or are you on drugs. We don't even ask them any personal questions like that. It's really obvious when people are in need. Um, but our direct aid is political in the sense that we build inter-ethnic solidarity. Um, we don't politi- uh, politicize what we do. We don't ha- have recipients, you know, accept our politics or even talk about our politics. We just don't do any of that. We don't talk about God, none of that stuff. Um, but we are a political force for low-income BIPOC because we've built L.A. County's largest inter-ethnic direct aid coalition, and this covers Black, Indigenous, people of color, Asian American, Pacific Islanders, all of us. There are Indigenous pe- Indigenous groups that we are um, partners with, a lot of Black organizations in South Central LA and LA County wide. We also want to get the message out there that, you know, Korean people don't only live in Koreatown. Um, Black people don't only live in South Central. That's a, another problem with the aid thing. Um, and this gives us a lot of collective bargaining power. We do get um, fast responses from LA city and LA County officials um, when they see what our coalition is. This is a very, very strong infra ethnic coalition. There's, it's it's going to be really hard to, hard to divide and conquer because we're united. So this also helped foster dialogue between our groups and solidarity. Um, you know, There's a lot of sol- solidarity between our low-income BIPOC groups and working class and just You know, um, marginalized BIPOC um, by, you know, bearing witness for each other's struggles and validating each other's struggles. But sometimes when only your people seem to be aware of what you're going through, you know, it's like you just think they're maybe going a little bit I imagining this. What is it? Come on, this isn't real. Right. But we also harness traditional charitable models and nonprofit models when it comes to funding. I don't see how mutual aid can work without large amounts of funding and resources. And I also believe that in order to affect meaningful change, uh, social justice, economic justice, we need an inside view of the cause and levers that, um, Perpetuate inequality and the funding that can solve that. Um, and there is actually funding. There's funding available. There's foundation funding. There's um, philanthropic funding from billionaires and millionaires that and private donors too, private donations that don't come with these um, conditions um, of like, well, if that person's on CalFresh, um, you know, they can't take, in the food aid or the produce aid. There's a, there is actually a considerable amount of unconditional money. Um, the thing about unconditional money for direct aid is uh, quite a bit of it's actually just sitting there. It's not being pursued by a lot of mainstream nonprofits because a lot of direct aid funding doesn't cover um, a lot of operating costs. You'll get some operating costs. I'm fine with the amount of operating costs um, that I've gotten so far. It's there. It's there. It's just the the ratios are different. Uh, mainstream nonprofits are used to getting a lot more in operational funds and then spending a little on direct aid. But if you're a direct aid nonprofit, um, you're going to get a lot more to purchase materials, food, ingredients, and a lot less for operating costs. But, you know, you, you'll get there. So, um, that's pretty much it. You know, that's how we work. Uh, we work by just going up to people talking to them and asking them and listening to them. It's like, do you need, um, would food aid help you? What, what kind of aid, uh, hot meals, aired meals, produce, are there any, uh, produce or ingredients that you prefer, you know, cultural preferences. We have an idea, but we ask. And so we provide, um, Culturally um, competent and culturally preferred foods, and you know this is all very. And it's not stereotyping people because we we also understand that, like you know, um like say for Koreatown Immigrants Workers Alliance, most of their constituents are um, Korean or Mexican and Central American, and a lot of older Koreans who live in Koreatown they like tacos too, and a lot of Latinx who live in Koreatown they like Korean barbecue too. That might not be true for Koreans who live in, you know, locker center or whatever. So it's, you know, it's all very, we, we adapt a lot and we um, don't treat anybody like they're a fixed thing or a fixed category. We understand that, um, you know, culturally preferred foods can cover a wide range of things and also be influenced by, um, you know, particular pockets of diversity.
1: Can you give some examples of the culturally specific foods that you all do provide?
2: say for um cadre they're based in south central la the family they serve are about um half black americans and half latinx or hispanic americans so for um um the black families in the grocery boxes we put in um, um some more greens um, for the um, Latinx family, we put in a bag of maseca. It's not really even that big of a deal. Like, most, a lot of people like potatoes, onions, and carrots, right? But for the um, low income Asian seniors, we put in a pack of tofu, and they love that. Um, and the Asian seniors, they typically don't want beans. If they do want beans, it's usually the small red beans, and that's generally preferred by the by Korean and Japanese seniors. Um, so culturally specific, for even for Asian Americans, you know, different kinds of rice, Japanese and Korean seniors, and some Chinese seniors like um, japonica rice, the short-grained rice. Um, but a lot of other Chinese seniors prefer jasmine rice. Um, for Southeast Asians, we um, also distribute to uh, Viets and Cambodian and Thai um, you know sticky rice jazz and rice just kind of like those little variations and then um, also with um, low income black seniors in South Central LA you know some of them are ADOS American descendants of slaves and um, we talked to um, LA Tenants Union, who distributes the Chesapeake apartments like you know what would you like you know like a can of tuna can of salmon um some Lowry seasoning or some other kind of seasoned salt, um, grits, things like that. And they also love Chinese food, you know? And they also love Korean barbecue. And they like a good salad with quinoa. Um, And what else? Look... uh, like we distribute with uh, three different indigenous groups, Native American groups, and they're all different. They're not even being Native or Indigenous is not one thing. So they do like, um, you know, squash and corn and peppers. It's not like that's all we're going to give them, but, you know, a little bit of that in a produce bag is really appreciated. Um, and they're also going to like general American things, you know. So... <clears throat> And sometimes there's, there's also just, it's going to be the same. A lot of Koreans really love corn, peppers, (laughs) and potatoes. It's it's that kind of stuff. That's
1: really cool that you do that because I think a lot of people have the idea that, you know, food donations are just what folks don't want to have and, and people should just accept
2: whatever, whatever they can get. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I'm going to talk about that later, but yeah, the, it, it's not just whatever crap you don't want. If you don't want to eat it, if you don't want to, if you would be too embarrassed to show up at your friend's house or your parent's house or whatever, or at your girlfriend and say, hey, look what I have for you. It should be that level of decent, good, nice. It's not some shit you have rotting away. No, that's been, that's a huge complaint among low-income BIPOC that in particular, you know, white people and white charities give them trash. There you are know, widespread widespread complaints of, like, expired food for years, rotten food. This is coming from almost every group. And this is what I mean by ethnic coalition building, where, like, the truth of one group is verified by the same experience of another group that's been abused at the hands of whiteness.
0: Wow. This work sounds really awesome and giving... Uh people the choice of what kind of food they want it's really inspiring Mm -hmm. oh
2: and it makes people happy they're so happy and it's not a lot it's not it is a little harder but it's not even that much more effort for how much joy it brings the recipients because it's like i see that little detail about you
0: i can imagine like every uh time every food we've ever passed out amongst every nonprofit i've never seen one where it's tailored to specific uh people coming in and being asked what they uh want so i we would like we would want to know like where how did you uh get started in your mutual aid effort like how did you end up founding um, this mutual aid effort
2: It's kind of something that, you know, my my parents were always into this. Like they would say if somebody asks you for food and they're hungry, you have to give it to them. It's a Korean Buddhist concept. Um, But specifically, um, you know, I intentionally opened a restaurant in South Central L.A. in May of 2015. It's called Revolutionario North African Tacos for the purpose of providing free hot meals to anyone in need and also beverage of their choice. Um, I think sometimes a lot of nonprofits perpetuate this idea that, you know, low-income people should uh, be given water, you know. But, you know, people who are living on the streets, it's like they need sugar. You know, very well-fed people who are on diet should not be dictating what people who are food insecure and oftentimes go hungry for prolonged periods need. You know, a little bit of sugar is a, is a great self medication for some people, you know, who are food insecure. So I used profits from my restaurant for giving back to the community. And I wanted to create a model for vertical economic diversity to redistribute resources. In other words, take profits from affluent and rich customers and use that, a portion of that profit, to provide free meals to anyone in need who had no ability to pay. And I even, if they just have to tell me, I can't pay. It's not like people abuse this, you know. You can kind of tell when people can't pay. Um, So this is where I differ from mutual aid organizational theory and I'm really criticizing theory, okay, that calls for horizontal or flat organizations. Um, I just really feel like horizontal or flat organizations, it's another form of stratification that perpetuates problems, and stratification and silos also perpetuate problems. Um, I think we need, you know, a lot of people involved in conversation, but we also need um, vetted leadership and leadership that um, also, answers to the community. So, um, I'm trying to create a vertically economic, uh, diverse model that's inclusive, interethnic, um, to strengthen our, um, you know, our, the, the working BIPOC communities. Can you
1: explain so, what the what the horizontal model is and what the vertical model is?
2: Okay. For example, horizontal stratification is really, um, you can have a lot of diversity, but it's diversity along the same band, right? Um, So let's say, you know, when Trayvon Martin was murdered, I was thinking, you know, I grew up diverse. But I thought about, um, let's say, you know, 10 black friends that i would spoken to within a month before Trayvon Martin was murdered. Probably like six or seven of them went to Ivy League schools. The rest wow. graduated from similarly elite schools. How is that real diversity? You know, they've traveled well, like I do. They're multi. And, that's, and that would be the same for a lot of my, um, you know, Korean-American friends and Asian-American friends. They're, they're more affluent, um, elite educations in some form. Um, and it's like, who are we even talking to? How are we even liberals? When we don't really know, you know, that we have some voice in policy and politics and funding, but we don't really know. We read about things, but you can't really read about things. You have to live in a mixed-income neighborhood as um, as a person with a little bit more income and resources, and engage with the community, listen to them. Remember, low-income communities are also shut off from information. Like, some things that you and I and, you know, Rex may take for granted, you know, a lot of low-income BIPOC just don't know. They just don't know. So that's what I mean by vertical um, diversity. Vertical diversity is economic diversity. So if um, an extremely low-income person needs, like, critical emergency help, what are they going to do? If their network is horizontal, the same as their economic level. How much are they going to crowdsource for help? A dollar? Two dollars? Some people don't even know anybody who's who's ever had as much as $50 at once. But if a community is vertically, economically diverse, then there are community members, or at least in that tribe, who can say, okay, they're higher income. Well, maybe I have $2,000 right away. I can talk to my friends about this. Look, this person I know, this friend I have, has no money. They're critical, whatever. Don't you know somebody at this hospital? Don't you know somebody here? Isn't there a program? Oh yeah, there is. LA County actually has this. You know, it's also sharing know-how. There's a lot of information that people with, um, you know, an American elite education have that low-income people are just not privy to. You know, they don't and they don't have. A lot of them don't have laptops or internet connections it's like let me google this for you
1: yeah i mean i see amongst uh you know people i know folks who do well for themselves and then just kind of check out and are just watching streaming films and tv right now (laughs) um yeah yeah so i mean like what makes you what makes you want to do this at all you know,
2: when before shelter in place um, took effect in March of 2020, my restaurant already went, was really hard hit by slow sales. Uh, January first is usually um, when sales start surging. It's uh, it starts the beginning of our high season. Um, as an Asian American um, business owner, restaurant owner, public serving business owner, I really felt the effects of like Asian Americans becoming kind of like uh, pariahs. Like, okay, we're not really going to go to a restaurant at the end of February and beginning of March. I got fifty thousand dollars in catering orders canceled, um, and business was just so slow that I kept low, you know reducing my hours since like the end of December because <clears> of <throat> you know the mysterious virus from China. And I was sitting in my restaurant, I had like $40,000 worth of just ingredient inventory. And I was like, what am I gonna do? Die alone, hoarding this shit? My family could just sit here, lock ourselves in and eat off of this for five years. And we just had so much food. Um, and I thought, you know, I can't. And he started giving it all away. Um, and that's what I started doing. And I think that's it. I mean, I think when COVID-19 hit, I saw people making these decisions. Are you going to accept it for the long term? Are you, do you realize it's not about individualism? Um, we're only going to get through this collectively. We're only going to get through this if we care about the group. Or are you going to be in denial and you're going to be the person that's just a useless layer, constantly saying, well, when it gets back to normal, I'll do this. When it gets back to normal, I'll do this. And you're being selfish and self-centered and you're locking yourself away and you're going to die alone. I mean, that's I just kind of like, that's it's kind of I thought, it just became very black and white. Light to me and since then since February March I have seen people um, grow into the choices they made you know some people really decided okay let's be collective and other people really decided it's gonna, this is going to make me more individualistic.
0: Wow <laughs> that's a really great way of uh, describing things uh, in terms of uh, the communities you come into contact with because of like like it's, it's collective in uh, our mutual aid mm-hmm. action work, but what communities do you feel like you end up serving the most and why do you think that's the case?
2: It evolves um, because where I started was in South Central LA and my restaurant specifically was on Jefferson and it was right next to the block that was um, Old Koreatown. That's where the first pres, uh, Korean Presbyterian church is, the first Korean church in America. Um, there's still a lot of low-income um, Korean seniors who live in that neighborhood. They're which hidden, is, they don't seem visible.
1: Which is the first uh, church?
2: Uh, Korean American Presbyterian Church or whatever, it's on Jefferson. Oh, okay. So that's the first Korean church. Um So, and because I speak Korean and I know they were being underserved because they're not inside Koreatown proper, I started with low-income Korean seniors and Asian seniors right in my, I always look in my neighborhood, right? And then, of course, low-income Black seniors, because I know low-income Black seniors are underserved. So I started with low-income Korean and low-income Black seniors. Um. And it's really, you know, all the government aid offices and mainstream nonprofits in L.A. County have Spanish language services, as they should. And this is a good thing. But they lack services in Asian languages and indigenous languages. And so it would be cost prohibitive for my nonprofit to have people on staff who can speak dozens of different languages. Right. I mean, I just wouldn't follow. I, I call this like the white model. If you feel like you need to build, you need so much funding just to get started. Go home. Stay home. There's no there's no role for that kind of nonprofit anymore. It's just bullshit. You can create partnerships, right? So um I speak Korean. I speak a little Spanish. My husband speaks French. There aren't a lot of French people calling frank but you know, to say he does, right? So um and then um I was able to develop a pretty fast like interethnic coalition of, of people who speak different languages too. So I'm able to get things translated in a lot of different languages and they also offer cultural insights so the language thing was huge but i also wanted to resolve the false dichotomy of constantly comparing immigrants with black americans So there are there are also a lot of black immigrants um, and we these narratives and tropes have the effect of dividing us in order to conquer us. So I spoke with um, my black friends, associates, colleagues in South Central L.A., and I said, you know, what do you think about this? I think this is a really good um, perspective. I think it really changes a lot of things right away. I said, what if, do you you think this is a good idea? What if I extended my argument, my demand for in-language, culturally competent support, services, and direct aid for at-risk, low-income, you know, uh, seniors, unhoused Asian Americans? What if I said that uh, low-income black seniors should get in-language, culturally competent support? And they thought it was a great idea. Because with that demand, first of all, if you accept that for Asian-Americans, you have to accept that for Black-Americans. You're just on the path to accepting that, right? It's too weird to say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, white Americans know that it, it has, um, you know, made fun of um, African-American vernaculars. They know. They know. And... You know, especially like very old black seniors, black seniors in general, they have really suffered at the hands of white people, white nonprofits who um, pretend they don't understand what they're saying or mock how they speak. You know, they've been insulted. But with my argument, I am putting the burden, the onus on the provider, the mutual aid provider or the nonprofit or the charitable organization. They have to be competent to serve low income black seniors.
1: That's so important. And I see um, I see a lot of mutual aid uh, that isn't doing that. So Mm -hmm. I I really commend you for um, for advocating for that. Um,
2: and And then we also reached out to Indigenous and Native American groups in L.A. County. L.A. County has the largest indigenous and native population of any metropolitan area in America. You know, I saw people doing things like from L.A., taking a van load of things to the Navajo Nation. You know, bless their hearts. I commend them, but it's not practical. And it's also weird because there are indigenous and Native American groups in LA County. We have the largest of any metropolitan area. Um, so, you know, they're not flat static categories. They did not, you know, they're not living, they're not all living on reservations, that kind of stuff. So there are Mesoamericans from Central Mexico to Costa Rica, probably 500,000 indigenous Mexicans in LA County, about 500,000 uh, Guatemal, indigenous Guatemalans in LA County. There are the California bands of Mission Indians. You know, the Fernandeño Pataviam are still alive in the San Fernando Valley, in San Fernando. And, you know, there's uh, the Chicano identity That's uh, that also includes this idea of our America, nuestra America. So we're always constantly trying to, you know, we strive to... Uh, serve people and build coalitions with people who don't fit into white categories and white constructs of race.
1: Um, So that sounds like uh, that might make it the difference, one of the main Mm -hmm. differences between mutual Mm -hmm. aid and charity. Yeah. Um, If you can create the best model of mutual aid in LA, what would that look like?
2: I mean, it's, it's, it needs a lot of funding. And actually, I've actually uh, um, created movement towards these sorts of initiatives being funded. And I actually got funded for this. Um, I would, there are lots of very tiny, small, like mom and pop, BIPOC-owned restaurants that um, didn't get any um, Act loans, no, you know... Um, economic disaster relief loans. They're never going to get any of the um, newer grants that are supposed to be for smaller um restaurant owners, but these are the kind of restaurants that serve the working people in their communities, right? They're never going to be featured on Eat or, or Rarely, right? Or LA Times, Food and Wine, but they provide very affordable food to the working people in their communities. So I have actually been successful in getting some funding to purchase meals, from these restaurants and the administrative work is hard because I also have to like, you know, sometimes, well, a lot of times um, teach the restaurant owners or the managers how to write um, a receipt in kind of like the invoice format um, that the funders want to see. And it's very simple, but you know, it's not simple. If you don't know, my mom used to always tell me that, look, Susan, sh- shut up and stop saying it. it's so simple. It's easy for you. Cause you know, when people don't know, they just don't know. They just don't know. So, um, my nonprofit does the administrative like work of helping them. Like, you know, slowly. Like, these are the kind of invoices you need to give me um, for this. For, you know, for these hundred meals I bought from you. And can you deliver to a local like low-income, affordable housing building? Can you deliver to this nonprofit? So, I would like this program that I started. Um, I would like more funding for it, Um, and I would like to see it just widely duplicated across low-income neighborhoods all over L.A. County.
1: That's so important because I'm just seeing so many businesses closing, and they're disproportionately BIPOC-owned, and it's really breaking Mm -hmm. my heart.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times it's not even that much. You know, and I'm also trying to get um, government meal contracts for these like super small pop mom and pop owned restaurants. Another thing that I've been working on is um, besides doing the administrative work, sometimes, you know, a lot of things don't get done. People don't get help because nobody can do the administrative work or wants to do the administrative work. So um, what, another thing I'm trying to do is to get uh, yeah, the meal contracts. They were like lots of programs like um, Off Their Plate, World Central Kitchen, Dine One One, that offered, um, you know, that, that purchased restaurant, uh, meals from restaurants at a rate of like $10 per meal for hospital workers and healthcare workers and then later community centers. But, you know... And I'm not criticizing them; they did a, they did a great job. But when you have the intake form, um, when the intake forms are online, and people have to hear about these online, you know, the first round of restaurants that that like are going to get signed up for these things are people who understand, um, you know, who are wired into social media, who know how to, who have a laptop. Who know how to fill in these forms, who know how to fill in ACH deposit forms, who know how to fill in Google forms. So you're going to have a lot of low income, small BIPOC restaurant owners just constantly left out. So I want to reverse America's trickle down aid to be trickle up. Start, help people at the bottom first. I, that would be my dream.
1: I myself have. have- thought about just going to small restaurants and helping them set up, uh, um, social media accounts just so that, you know, that they can run it themselves. Um, because I do feel like they're being so left out, um, in that way.
2: Yeah. Sometimes you can't even find them. Yeah. Sometimes you can't even find them, and then m- most of our customers are in the same boat, you know. Because I try to eat out when I do eat out, and this isn't going on for decades. I try to find like super hole in all wall restaurants. The owners don't speak English. Their patrons don't speak English. They they may have slightly older. Ch- uh, children who are teens, or you know, maybe they're in junior college, but they're still from a you know a low-income family. You know, they're not going to be as wired in and media savvy and know how to you know fill in like financial um, applications and documents.
0: Hopping back to uh, the changing the trickle down neoliberal mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. ideal into a more trickle up where, <laughs> well. Realistically, it's a trickle-up economy where we, all the wealth mm-hmm. at the bottom trickles up to them. But how yeah, do yeah. you want to see your uh, mutual uh, aid project? How wh- what would you like to see to happen? Like say five, ten years from now, or just in the immediate coming year?
2: I think I see our um, nonprofit doing a lot of the administrative and distribution work. Um, for meal contracts, from um, uh, government meal contracts that used to go to just big institutional caterers. Um, I really want those accounts to go to, um, be divided up, um, to like, you know, even 800, 1000 small BIPOC owned restaurants. And there's a lot more than that, but I started calculating. I think, the, the city of LA's, um, department of aging, they pay for 15,000 meals per day for seniors. Um, and there's Lake County, there are all these different county kind of uh, government public funded public, you know, funded with public taxpayer money, right? Um, that go to these big institutional catering companies, and I don't think they should have those accounts. I think those accounts should go to truly small BIPOC owned restaurant owners who operate in low income communities. I would like to see my nonprofit growing. Um, and then we also started the beginnings of a homegrown CFA. This is Lincoln. <laughs> You can you can sell um, produce that you do in your backyard um, and then I would also like to purchase from uh, bipoc farmers who are local as local as possible to create CFAs that like you know more affluent customers can buy to subsidize free groceries for low-income um, people I would like to start an urban farm um, many of them um, put in an application for a nursery um, license Uh, so that I could propagate uh, fruit trees and sell them to people who have money and use some of the profits to plant fruit trees in low-income neighborhoods, housing, low-income housing. Um, I'd like to create more green space in Koreatown. What's happening in Koreatown is that um, Koreatown has the the lowest uh, green coverage County cover well. It's the least green neighborhood out of 188 neighborhoods in LA, and it's uh, there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, but one of the reasons, besides the population density and the you know the, the commercial built out the the density, is that um, trees that are supposed to be planted in Koreatown are provided provided by city plants. And the trees they have are just full-size trees. So they grow very, very large. And over the period of, you know, you can see those huge trees in Koreatown. Over the period of a decade or so, or even more, they they can just kind of overwhelm a property owner or a sidewalk. So um, I'm proposing that city plants or my nonprofit, because I've already started propagating them, um, offer free uh, dwarf and semi dwarf trees that are fruit bearing to low income communities and and you know property managers and building owners who operate low income housing. You know, let's rescale the solution. Right, one of the problems of this lack of green cover, um, canopy cover in Koreatown, not being solved is that you know the only trees that are being offered are too big. How about if I just give you smaller trees? And I did offer one nonprofit sixty fruit-bearing semi-dwarf or dwarf trees um, because they got funding to plant, um, and they they are planning on getting the trees from city plants. Um, But I offered them small, much, much, much smaller trees that are easier to manage and that bear fruit within a year or two, which makes you know residents really happy. And um, we can think of like small shade covers instead of thinking everything has to be a big solution to a big problem Sometimes the big solutions don't fit, fit a big problem. You can come up with a lot of smaller solutions.
1: My mom signed up uh, to get one of those trees um, recently. Yeah. <laughs> Was it through KYC?
2: Yeah, KYC, CLA, but you can go to city plants directly. If you're a homeowner, you can get up to seven free trees, um, but they grow big. They're full-size trees. You can, look at, you can look at them they grow to like 20 feet, 30 feet.
1: Yeah, and KYC is Korean Youth Center?
2: Yeah, KYC, CLA. Yeah, Korean Youth and Community Center, Los Angeles.
1: Yeah. Um, well, that is a lot of stuff that you want to do, all that sounds so amazing and so needed. Um, how can folks support what you all the things that you want to do?
2: Um, it's really fundraising, resource donations, um, volunteering to help disseminate information and know-how, um, not ideas, not templates, not a, like we did this spreadsheet we have this handbook here. I don't, I really don't need that. Um, it's volunteering to, you know, disseminate the information and also like respect me enough to know that, you know, I already know how to do something. I'm not asking for like somebody to give me a, a class, but like, you know, go out. And you know, help teach a restaurant owner how to write a simple handwritten invoice receipt. Ten dollars per meal, one hundred people equals one thousand dollars. Susan Park of Asian Americans for housing. you can even write AA four H whatever. I mean, it's it's that simple, and somebody's got to do it. And then also, my small individual deliveries take up a lot of time because there's some super isolated seniors who don't live in, like, you know, in ethnic enclaves or near ethnic enclaves, or even if they are served by a large nonprofit like Little Tokyo Services Center, they have about, you know, 20 seniors who need a little more because it's got a little bit harder for them. Those kind of small deliveries actually take up a lot of my time. It's easy to get, say, tell uh, somebody to a produce company, okay, I'm going to order a thousand boxes from you. That's um, 10 pallets or even more. You drop them off and then I call a bunch of nonprofits to pick up or I organize a big drive to pick up. That's actually really, really easy. It's those little individual deliveries to the isolated seniors that just take up a lot more time. I, I need help with that. those things the most.
0: Oh, yeah. I do, that. I do uh, deliveries to seniors weekly, every Tuesday mornings yeah. with a local nonprofit that's also trying to do their own uh, mutual aid okay. network. Um, how it do takes you a balance? lot of time. Yeah, it is. It, it's it's, there's a two-hour window and I deliver to five people. It's a lot of time and a lot of like labor. I'm not particularly strong either and it's like boxes. Yeah, of and yeah.
2: a lot of times seniors don't pick up their phone. You have to call them five times to yeah. get hearing problems. Yeah, yeah. especially yeah.
0: if you're, they're in apartments that are like hard to yeah. get up to as well and they got like un-code <laughs> that you have to
2: And the Asian seniors too. You know, the older an Asian American person is, the more likely they're going to be, you know, heritage language only speakers too. So finding bilingual people, it's not that challenging. But I I have found some cases where, like, people really are not bilingual. You know, they just they're just not. It's like thank you for trying, but you really you're just not. How do you? You (laughs) never know what you're going to. It's hard. It's hard. I'm good. I'm really fast doing administrative work. That's where, like, that's why I do this stuff because I can do, I can do a considerable amount of administrative work. Um, very fast. Like, extremely fast. Um, I, I have problems sometimes with, um, like, carpal tunnel syndrome and my left three fingers are just really numb from typing too much. I mean, I'm just constantly doing paperwork. Um, but, You know, my kids are pretty independent. They help me out. Uh, It's not easy balancing. I think where I really fail the balancing is I don't take care of myself as much. But I think since um, my work for my nonprofit and mutual aid network um, grew, I really just pushed the restaurant stuff more onto my husband. And that's really what he should have been doing in the first place. And I started spending a little more time taking day. care of myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the restaurant is, is, is for him. You know, he's a chef. He's a chef by training, and that's what that's what he grew up learning. He went to culinary school in France. Me, you know, I can be a chef if I want to, but I can also do a lot of other things. So, How do
1: you take care of yourself?
2: Um, I drink wine every day <laughs> at the end of the day. <laughs> And that's not the best way to take care of yourself, you know. It gets me, it gets me to sleep fast. Um, but taking care of myself, um, I really like gardening. I really, really like gardening. I started that after moving out of South Central LA into um, what I call a West Koreatown town, or Korean nice. Beverly Hills. So yeah, I really like gardening. That's what gave me the idea for nursery, for the nursery and propagating, um, you know, edible plants and trees. Um, gardening really, I really love it. I mean, I love it so much. It's just every aspect of it personal pleasure. Um, it can help me as a business owner, it can help um, mutual aid, it's regenerative. You can propagate, you, can, you can just get more more stuff, you know, it it, it multiplies literally. So I really like everything about that. Um, I like going to the Korean sauna, but that's been closed. Although I can probably find, you know, a little corner Korean sauna somewhere that doesn't have any non-Korean customers that can be opened by appointment.
1: (laughs) I think a lot of people are missing the Korean spas right now.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can probably find something though for Korean only speakers or, you know, I, I see Koreans. I can find that. Um, and oh, I have, um, I I like vintage clothes and I'm starting, um, this is another like, uh, social enterprise, um, and, um, nonprofit mutual aid thing. Um, I'm launching a line of Korean heritage, like inspired, but modern, um, clothing that's not a lot of not a lot of like styles for the, the basic simple but you know upscale modern um, and like home accessories that older Asian Americans can be trained to do rather easily because I see a lot of older Asian Americans who don't speak that much English or none at all and they work in industries that are very labor intensive and they're going to age out and a lot of times you know there's multi-generational poverty so what're they gonna do? Um, so I thought maybe, you know, I can start this line so even people who have like arthritis, they can be given the task of like, you know, just gluing some um, background stuff and then somebody who can do more detailed work takes it um and handles some finishing details that they're capable of doing. Um, and the model would be like, you know, prepaid. Um I have to figure out the, the labor model, but it would be prepaid and would be very, very fair based on what they do. Um, and It would be like a living wage. And I have the, like the line visualized too. That's another thing I'm working on.
1: Love that. So how do people actually get plugged in with you to help out um, if they uh, can or want to? You
2: should just email me And then they should be willing to just hop on a call and we should just go through it really fast. But people who email me and they only want to like go back and forth via email, and that's just like, what is that? It just we can talk about this in five minutes and we can just go back and forth with like five different emails and ten different emails. So what's your email address? Uh, the easiest one for people to remember is smokingkorean at gmail.com. Okay.
0: (laughs) Wait, smoky or smoking?
2: Smoking Korean. Smoking korean at gmail.com.
0: All right, cool. Awesome. Do you have any advice for people who are starting their own mutual aid network or want to start one?
2: I would say um, just do it. (laughs) (laughs) It can be as simple as being kinder to someone. Come on, we're out every day. You know, you open your eyes. There are people who need something right in front of you. If you're going to the gas station, you can see that somebody's sitting right there and it's a really hot day and they're red. Do you think they would want, you know, a cold bottle of water? Keep a couple in your car. Just be aware of what's going around you, you know, um, in your own community and as you're like going to and from work. If there's something you, somebody you see on the way that you can help Um, think of all the different ways that you can offer support. Just a little buffer, a little comfort, a little cushion to someone who is struggling. Are you the kind of person you see somebody who's clearly carrying too much stuff? Some of it's going to fall off. Are you the kind of person who says, can I get at least one of the packages for you and open the door for you? When you see somebody drop something and they can't pick it up, do you pick it up for them? Start like thinking of your life and other people that way. And you'll see more and more ways to give. You know, I was standing in line at Ralph, this older man, was trying to pay for $5 worth of food. It was like, you know, like a loaf of bread. His EBT card wasn't going through. He started arguing with the cashier. And the cashier was like, it just says there's no money in your EBT card. Okay? And he was becoming belligerent. I just paid for it for him. $5 doesn't mean that much to me. Yep. It really, it's $5 is not much money to me at all. Was it, did this man thank me? No. He, nobody's had probably ever even done anything nice with him. He didn't even expect it. And it's just like, whatever. But you know, it's not about me. The man was clearly, I mean, he looked extremely, extremely low income. His shoes were cattered. You know, he's not going to go party with a loaf of bread and, you know, a pack of hot dogs or whatever. And if you keep your eye open for things like that, and even at work too, co-workers... You know, um, even successful people. If you know some successful people, to say, you know, I've been thinking about you. I was wondering if everything's okay. You'd be surprised. Successful people, a lot of times, nobody even asks if um, they're really okay. But, you know, everybody feels like they need help sometimes. And if you ask successful people if they're they're, um, doing okay when they're all alone and nobody's helping them, nobody's asking them, they're going to remember you later. That's actually how I get some um, very large donations and you can't fake it. It's just the way I've been. Of course, I know successful people, you know, not everybody knows people with a lot of money, but um, you know, that's where I've gotten a lot of like substantial private donations. People remember me. They're like, Oh God, even 10 years ago, Susan was like this kind of person with me when, you know, just open your eyes to the world around you and people who are, you know, their little daily struggles. I think that's how you start. Like, mutual aid on a small level, you know, person to person level. And then you can also start organizing with some friends, you know, let's say you want to help a restaurant, you know, 20 old seniors who need food, um, $10 a meal, $200. Can you, that's one of the things I did. Okay. $200. You know, I, I, I had $200 to spend for 20 um, meals for seniors, but I knew that I'm not going to have 20,000, 50,000, a hundred thousand, half a million, you know, so I started just talking to my foodie friends. I was like, hey, let's chip in and buy, you know, to get $200 worth of meals, $400 worth of meals. You can do stuff like that, too. Um,
1: you know what I'm realizing is that we didn't talk about your own background. Um, can you share a little bit about your own background and how it got you to what you're doing today?
2: Um, I'm... Korean American, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, in October of 1969. My family moved to America in January of 1975. I was five years old. And I always say moved. I don't say we immigrated. We were certainly not refugees. My family was doing okay in Korea. My dad was part of the creative class and professional class. Um, My mother wanted to move to America. My father did not. My brothers and I did not either. So I always say we moved. Um, My parents were part of the professional class of Korean Americans who immigrated to America roughly between 1965 and 1977. Some a little bit before, but some a little bit after. But this is really 1965 to 1977. You know, a large critical mass of Korean Americans who either had um, college degrees or equivalent or were highly skilled in some trade or industry immigrated to America and, um, you know, created these um, small mutual aid networks that also involved helping each other with financial instruments like loans that were privately funded by a group of Korean Americans who trusted each other. We substituted, you know, they acted as substitute banks for each other. Um, they also organized, these are the Korean Americans who also started a lot of the, you know, well established, um, better known Korean American nonprofits, um, in, uh, some of them in the 1960s, but certainly, you know, most of them starting in the 1970s until the early 1990s. Um, These are the Korean Americans who also just decided, you know, with a small group of other Korean Americans to start um, large industries like the wig industry, Um, what is now called the black hair industry that's controlled by Korean Americans, really started off as Korean Americans controlling Korean hair, our hair, the hair from our women, low income, poor, impoverished women. It was our hair. So, you know, they decided to start, like, vast industries, like the wig industry. And um, obviously, they didn't have any idea that black women would be the largest customers for it. But, you know, I think it's just being a part of this, the children of this generation of Korean Americans and seeing how much they were able to self-organize. And obviously, they brought the tools with them. From Korea, you know, they weren't refugees. They didn't walk over. What, you know, that's why I want to emphasize the kind of know-how they brought with them from Korea. Because of, you know, false immigrant narrative in America that we're all the same. We're all just kind of like blank slates, and we all don't know anything about America. That's not true. You know, that's just, we're not all the same ones. We come with a different group. But anyway, just being a part of this generation, the first two generations of Korean-Americans who established um, Korean-American economies, um, I think that is like the biggest influence in my life. And also my parents were progressives. You know, they're not just progressive for Korean parents or Asian parents of their generation. They were just progressive parents. So they raised me that, you know, you know, they they they're in their seventies. they don't have like what's considered politically correct words by you know today's standards when they talk about different people, but ultimately, they always went back reverted back to their idea that you know all human beings are human beings, and we all deserve a shot at you know equity, um fairness. And not just basic needs, but, you know, we all deserve a shot at, you know, living out some of our dreams and our hopes and our aspirations and trying to better ourselves because that's what dif- what makes us different from, you know, animals. So I think those two things really influenced who I am as a person, um, how I see um, in organized mutual aid and my relationship vis-a-vis um, white supremacy. You know, my parents made sure I could still speak Korean. My parents made sure I can read Korean. I can think, dream, hope, live in Korea. I don't need to think in a colonizer's language. I am independent of them. So I can say, you know, and I know, you know, they they don't know what's going on in my head. They don't understand what I'm thinking. But I've been entirely educated in America. I know their playbook. I've had to read much about them. They live in a friggin' glass house. Their playbooks are published. They know nothing about me, um, And that's just really funny to me. Yeah, I definitely uh,
1: relate to a lot of what you're saying. Um, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother uh, came over here. She was already a nurse in Korea. Um, but you know, During that time, which was late 60s, it was only the, you know, certain certain kinds of of people from Korea who were able to um, uh, immigrate over here. So it was like, yeah people with yeah. skills, but then they come over mm-hmm. here and then they can't practice the in the field that they are trained mm-hmm. for. So she couldn't be a nurse and she ended up being like a, a caretaker earning a whole lot less. Um, mm-hmm. And my grand my, my maternal grandfather was an architect. He really didn't want to come here. It was actually my grandmother's dream to come here and when he well, came here, <laughs> and when he came here, He was mowing lawns.
2: Um, Yeah. And he probably became a little bitter and he felt emasculated because being an architect in Korea is a big deal. He had um, status and class and people spoke to him a certain way. People probably called him something, right? Teacher or the boss. And then he comes here and he's mowing lawns and he's somebody's lawn boy. And he's choking on it. He's angry. Yes, that's what happened to my father. He's just the indignity. Yes, yeah. you know.
0: Yes, because they don't care. And that's how our we're playbooks. all rendered.
2: No, they don't. And and but they're suspicious of us because they think you know East Asians in particular. Like, but they have high culture. They know shit too. But they don't want to know what we know. They're too lazy. But then that causes them to be constantly kind of uh, suspicious of us and always consider us to be foreigners because they don't even want to bother to read one book about us. We have to read everything about them.
0: Yeah it's a very common story. Like a lot of like Asian uh, immigrants, um, a lot of people who just come here and they used to be doctors. Like my, uh, my best friend's dad, for example, it was a doctor back in Burma and he's here and now he's a restaurant owner. (laughs) Yeah. He started as an engineer. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then they don't understand like these backgrounds that these Asian immigrants have you know, and they're like, wow, God, you're so smart. You're so amazing. It's like, <laughs> you, th- these are people who are bringing in very advanced skill sets and thinking skills, executive thinking skills, administrative skills, organizational skills, science about life, you know, science and, and the body and how, you know, the world is built. They're putting it in this one little business or an industry. Yeah, of course, they're going to do well.
0: Do you have any final thoughts, Susan, as we uh, close out? Um, On uh, this episode
2: You know what Motivates me to do this work Is it's fighting White supremacy And institutional racism It's not dismantling it I want to chip away at it I want to adjust the cogs and levers of how it moves and what it wants to do. And I want to bring down the matrix of oppression brick by brick until it collapses onto itself while simultaneously creating alternative systems for BIPOC. And I think that's we create these alternative systems through mutual aid networks, and it does work. You think about all the shit that Korean Americans have our people we have our own hospitals we have our own schools we have so many of our own institutions why can't BIPOC in America have that across the board or more anyway
0: building dual power that doesn't Mm -hmm. rely upon them
2: (laughs) And I think one extra question that's really important to just to address because a lot of other stuff can be edited out is, um, you know, what is you you to know? What is the general mindset in AAPI Asian American Pacific Islander communities concerning mutual aid? Um, If negative mindset, how can it be improved, outreach, education? Um, There's really no negative mindset towards um, mutual aid. I think Asian American um, and Pacific Islander communities, we have the highest rate of foreign-born members. Um, And um, our cultures, you know, we're all different kinds of Asian, we're all different kinds of Pacific Islanders, but um, we do have some similarities in the sense that AAPI cultures are more group orientated, family orientated. You know, we think about the collective, and that's probably true across BIPOC, basically non-white people tend to be more collective and group and family orientated. What's good for us, instead of thinking what's good for me. So, I think in AAPI communities, in particular, though, because there is a high um, we have the highest rate of foreign-born members who bring these traditional, like you know, ideas of like a neighborhood pocket or a, even a village pocket of people who help each other. Um, it just comes very naturally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're we're great at it. We're actually the best at it. Yeah.
0: That's so very true. Like even I like we're It is as much as I engage in it. Mm-hmm. Like my own family does. <laughs> even. Although my family lives apart, we still maintain that connection of like, my aunt calls mm-hmm. me over for food all the time and gives me food.
2: Yeah.
1: It's re- it's really been a survival mechanism, um, mm-hmm. especially because we're like newer immigrants.
2: Mm-hmm. So we have to do that for our own families, our own, um, you know, even like growing up, I mean, I had to translate for my parents as young as seven or eight you know, I did translate for my parents. And then I think, you know, like like East Asians and Southeast Asians are dumpling making cultures. You know, just being held hostage from the time you're like three, four, well maybe so you four or five. And you're just making hundreds of dumplings with your family. <laughs> um <laughs> And like why you have to make hundreds, it's just incomprehensible, but there's always, you know, lunar new year, some holiday, some event, or you have to make hundreds and you just have to make hundreds for no reason, right? <laughs> yeah. Like just you know, putting your share, your little share of collective effort into, you know, the group bounty. And then also understanding that the elders are gonna tell you when you can move up and what you're allowed to do. You know, okay, so you can put a dollop of like, you know, dumpling a uh, horse meat into the center of the the wrapper. <laughs> um, oh, wait a minute. Now you're making a mistake. You're not consistent. One's too fat, one's too small. You're just all over the map. Control yourself. So we learned self-control too, right? And then, um, you know, how to pinch the dumplings. Oh, you know, so-and-so you're doing it really well. You have good fine motor skills, control. I think, you know, Asian cultures can teach children like fine motor skills. There's a bigger emphasis on that. Don't touch that like that. You know, of course, you know, sometimes the way they try to teach you is maybe not that me <laughs> it's not that acceptable but you know i mean we're, we're taught these things we're taught oh, these
1: things. yeah i i was on a swim team that was all korean when i was a kid and he used mm-hmm. to hit us with a bamboo stick across <laughs> the
2: back of our cab into the water yeah and that's uh, that's called, that's child abuse that's illegal <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, but man, I yeah, I really love the um, your your dumpling story because I definitely relate to that and definitely have memories of that
2: as well. It's a bonding. Experience. I wanted to make more broadly Asian, but like if you're Korean American too, with like first generation immigrant parents, you know that before that trip to the Grand Canyon or Disneyland or whatever, everybody has to wake up at five p five a.m. <laughs> oh my god! To help mom make kimpa to make kimpa. <laughs> And mom's, you know, mom's like you got a lucky because I've been I've been working since three a.m. to cook the rice, the, the stuffing stuff, and then you scarf it down in the car before you enter Disneyland because they wouldn't let you let food in. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> or you try to hide it in your purse. <laughs> oh
2: yeah, we had yeah. to sneak or, it in. <laughs> my parents' idea was for me to carry a purse and me to hide it because they wouldn't search a child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Because it was already too expensive to get in.
0: Yeah, $7 water bottles and no tanks.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't buy water either. So we're all drinking like, it starts off with cold water, right? But it's lukewarm tempted by the end of the day.
1: <laughs> um, okay, well, thanks so much for spending time with us. And um sharing I've been your story me. Um, it was really an honor um, to speak with you and I think that uh, you know people like you aren't um, uplifted enough in in um, the stories about Asian American
2: folks. Thank yep. you so much. I think Thanks. Asian Americans in general just are not uplifted enough. Yeah, yeah, we just aren't for our good for the good deeds that we do. I mean, I cannot stress like the good work that Asian American nonprofits do, not just for Asian Americans, but you know, like one of the buildings at KYCC LA, um, one of their affordable housing units. Uh, half the residents are um, low income and or even formerly unhoused Black seniors and low income Black families. Uh, a lot of Asian American nonprofits are like that, like over half of their constituents or almost half are um, not even Asian American. Um, they're just people who live in, in the community and they're, you know, BIPOC who live in the same community. Those kinds of stories really need to be told more. You know? Agreed. Because Asian Americans are often, you know, placed as proxies for white people. We are like the proxy villains for white liberal assimilationists and or the proxy, you know, um, people who accept guilt for white, white, white liberals. I don't know how that even happened. And white uh, conservatives still love to use Asian Americans as proxies. It's, yeah. it's, it's our own clear, stories, uh, the real stories of Asian Americans need to be told here. Yeah.
1: No, that's tactic. why we're doing this. <laughs>
0: the model minority. And
2: thank you for having me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. well was, thank you
2: so much for having me yeah no problem thanks, it was great learning
0: again. all we could from you <laughs>
2: oh thank you thank you all right have a good day so wrap you yep. too that's yep. what's up with <laughs> okay. that's what's up thank you <laughs>